Every organization has the lines that uh, should not be crossed. We're all part of things. We know what those are about. Unfortunately, then, in many organizations, those lines are invisible, uh, which makes it difficult not to cross them sometimes. And if you cross them, there are often dire consequences. Well, churches are no exceptions. We also have certain lines you shouldn't cross, and unfortunately, some of them are invisible. So what I'd like to do is just uh, help you to visualize now that here's a line that you shouldn't cross. I'm standing here, and I'm going to cross it, okay? <laughs> You're wondering, uh-oh, what are we in for now? Well, one of the taboos that many churches, in fact, every church I've ever been involved with, is about talking politics in church, okay? That's a taboo. Why? Probably because we're afraid that we'll offend somebody. If we offend somebody, we're going to make them angry. If we're going to make them angry, there's, the house is going to be divided and there'll be trouble. So that's kind of the rule. But for better or worse, we're into an election year, well, we're into an election three years, and uh, it, we can't get away from it, right? It's everywhere. It's been like that forever. And uh, we'll no sooner we get finished with this, and we'll start the next one, okay? So... As the people of God, uh, for better or worse, we've kind of hitched our wagons to the horses of politics and politicians. It's the way our world works. It's who we are. It's hard to avoid, right? Uh, we uh, convince ourselves that government leaders can fix our world, uh, either national, uh, as we're having national elections or state elections, uh, uh, our community elections. Our hopes and our dreams sometimes ride on those we choose. Now, some of us have been around long enough that we have kind of like look at it a little bit funny, but most of us still, we have in the back of our minds this idea that something's going to happen. And so we choose with a dream that somehow those we elect are going to return us to the place of prominence, that our nation will again be the foremost nation in the world, that we will be wealthy, that our economy will get on the fast track, um, that we can make and spend money uh, at will. And in fact, popularly, that's the measure of the health of, of who we are, isn't it? The GNP, uh, the market, uh, employment figures, and consumer spending. Uh, everywhere you go, if consumer spending up, we're supposed to be excited. If it's down, we go in the dumps, okay? That's, uh, that's the science. My question is, why should that be for the people of God? Okay, why should that be for the people of God? Going way back to Abraham, uh, in, in almost to the beginning of Genesis, right after the creation story and the flood story and the, and the tower story, in chapter 12, God calls Abraham and makes a promise to him that God has kept ever since that time and will keep uh, for as long as we're on the face of this earth. And he said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, the whole world will be blessed. So that promise prevailed all the way through when they were taken to exile. It said God remembered his promise. And I mean, we're taken into captivity in Egypt. They, uh, uh, God, and they were slaves. God remembered their promise and sent Moses to deliver them. And God delivered them. And, and, and uh, then he brought them back into the land and they struggled to be the people of God. And so uh, one time in the book of Samuel, as they were struggling with the Philistines, who were the great power of that time against them, their mortal enemy, they were really beating up on Israel. And they were getting tired of getting beat up on And One time they actually, actually captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it away. That was a very symbol of God's presence with Israel. And here it was gone. And they were in this big mope, you know. 
And suddenly they decide, we want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king. We want a king who will raise an army to protect us. We want a king who will develop an economy so we can quit depending upon the seasons, planting our crops, and we can have a real life like the rest of the nations. And Samuel, who was the prophet, priest, uh, last of the judges, said to, the, said to them, no, you can't do that. God is supposed to be your king. But God said to Moses, to Samuel, hey, Samuel, relax a little bit. Let him see what it's like. And so they elected a king, uh, chose uh, Saul, and Saul failed. Then uh, God chose David, and David succeeded. And God gave him victory, and he brought Israel into what was called their golden age, where they had conquered all their enemies, sent them out. They developed an economy. They developed social structure. They became a prominent nation, the, the equal of anybody else that they knew of in their time. It was tremendous. And so then uh, Solomon was unfaithful. Even though he was given great wisdom, he didn't know what to do with it. And, and he failed uh, out of loyalty to David. God didn't uh, cause the trouble to come out in the kingdom until after Solomon was gone. His son took over. And then the kingdom divided in the northern and southern kingdom, fought against each other, did all kinds of stuff, made alliances with other nations and all, all the things they weren't supposed to. And eventually they were taken into captivity. They just blew the covenant. They couldn't keep it. They couldn't be the people of God. And so God let them uh, be taken away by Assyria and then Babylon. And, and so, um, and, and so it, it went on for a while, and the prophets had made two promises to them. One promise was, you've blown the covenant, so you're going to go into exile. God's going to judge you. He's going to discipline you, and he's going to bring back the faithful ones. And the second promise went with that was that you won't be here forever, but God's going to bring you back. So God brought them back. And they, and they rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They enacted some reforms under Nehemiah, uh, and, and, but, um, but they never regained that place. They never came back to that prominence that, that many of them remembered in the back of their minds when David was king, and everybody looked at Israel and said, whoa, who are they? Okay? They never got back to that place, but they dreamed about it. Through all of their struggles, they kept harboring that dream that had been given to them by the prophets, that God would call a new king who would be in the line of David. He would be like David, that he would rally the forces. He would raise an army, and he would defeat their enemies and bring them back in that golden age. And so they, they kept uh, thinking about that time of greatness once again for Israel. Well, the enemy turned from being to Syria, to Babylon, to Persia, to Greece, and finally to Rome. And they still hope for God's deliverance. They still look for this Messiah in the Hebrew, Christ in the, in the Greek. We call it from the Greek as we read the New Testament. God's chosen king who would claim David's throne, deliver them from Rome, return the kingdom to Israel. That's as far as they could see. But return the kingdom to Israel, and they would be back in their greatness. And that's the world into which Jesus was born. With this expectation of this king who would be sent by God to bring them back to this golden place to bring them a political solution to the problems they had, to return power and wealth to Israel. And so we enter the drama at Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, a beautiful passage that some of us have probably memorized and could repeat, uh, maybe in other translations, maybe in this one. But it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Israel with him. 
When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream to go, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And most of you probably know how the story continues. That an angel came to Joseph in a dream and told him that the child was in danger to take uh, him and his family to Egypt. And there they stayed until Herod died. And the angel came back and told him that Herod was dead. Well, no, when they took him, Herod was furious when, they, when, he, when he couldn't find the, the, the new king. He was gone. And so furious that uh, he ordered the death of all of the children two years and under, as he estimated that time would have been the time when this king should have been born. And then the news came in Egypt that Herod had died, and, uh, and so Joseph was to return. And, and, but then he was told not to return to Nazareth, um, not to return to Jerusalem or Bethlehem, but to go to Nazareth because Herod's son Archelaus was in Judea, and that was, that was not a good sign either, so to avoid him. So what we have in this story, we have two kings. It's a tale of two kings, isn't it? These short verses. Very telling, this tale of two kings. Herod had been appointed by the emperor of Rome to be the king of the whole region, included Israel. He sought power, and he used that power to keep his power. And in spite of all that power, he was still insecure. So insecure that he was in fear of, a rival, of this rival king. Even though it was the king of the Jews and Herod wasn't Jewish, he feared that he might lose something in the process. And so uh, he was brutal with people who, who, who crossed him in any way. Members of his own family he killed because he was afraid they might try to overthrow him and take the throne. His family feared him. And, and we know the story of the innocents, the little children that Herod ordered to be killed, murdered, so that uh, he could eliminate a rival king. He was oppressive. He demanded absolute allegiance and used his power to become very wealthy. He was very self-serving and very narcissistic. He wanted to be remembered. So the way he was going to be remembered, he, was, he started these enormous building projects. Herodian is an amazing place. Some of the ruins of it are still exist today. It's just outside of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. He built a palace in Caesarea Philippi that was the rival of much anything else in that time. He rebuilt a temple in Jerusalem, a magnificent building, and did, and did many other things that, that, that were meant to be his legacy. 
that people would see and say, that's Herod. He was the great. These are all symbols of that greatness. And even though he demanded respect, what he only got was fear and hatred. People in general didn't like him. Jesus was also sent, but not by an emperor, by God. And he was a king, but with no earthly power, no earthly prestige, no earthly prominence. In the story here, he's a vulnerable child who needs the protection of his father against his enemies. He's born into a humble home with humble parents. And even though visited by the Magi, who who weren't really kings, they were more like astrologers who studied the stars. It was a science in their day. Throughout his life, Jesus was very secure. He trusted in the Father in everything. He was gracious even toward his enemies. He was compassionate, kind, generous. And though by all measures he had no status, no wealth, no honors, no visible memorials, Jesus was respected and sought after by common people. In everything, he served God and those around him, even in a kind of ironic twist. He even served the Jewish and Roman authorities who participated in his death. Thus, he fulfilled his own teaching, love your enemies. Now, these two kings ruled over two kingdoms. That's what it's about, right? Kingdoms have kings who rule over them. If you have a king, you have a kingdom. If you have a kingdom, you have a king, right? Okay, so so these two kings ruled over two kingdoms that were side by side. You couldn't tell them apart. Herod represented Rome. He was a ruthless conqueror. uh, Rome was also ruthless conquerors. They conquered everybody they could all around them. They also demanded absolute allegiance They even betrayed their emperors as gods. They expected people to bow down and worship. They valued power, wealth, pleasure. Then Rome became a massive empire, huge empire. The biggest, I mean, everything that they knew of almost was ruled by Rome. And they took great pride in having absolute military and economic dominance over their empire. The famed Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was at the end of a sword, at the threat of poverty. It was was held by violence and fear. If anyone hiccuped somewhere in the empire, Rome wouldn't know who it was, where they were, why they hiccuped, and what they could do about it. If they deemed it a threat, the person would pay dearly. In contrast, Jesus came preaching, demonstrating and offering the kingdom of God, a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. In Galatians, the apostle Paul sums up the character of Jesus' kingdom when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. Boy, isn't that a contrast? Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4, in, what's, in his big synagogue address, which was like part of his opening in, in, in Galilee as, as he began to preach and minister, took his, his text, Isaiah 61, and as he, said to, as he said to them, he came to minister to the poor, to the lame, uh, to the prisoners, to the oppressed. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. 
the kingdom of God is here. In Acts chapter 4, the new believers shared whatever they had. It says that if someone had land, they would sell their land, bring the proceeds to the apostles, and it would be distributed to anybody who had need. They cared for each other. They took care of each other. James, in the first chapter of his, uh, of his book, says true religion that pleases God is to look after the widows and the orphans, the most helpless, the most vulnerable in their society, and still to some degree in our own. They didn't have our safety net, so if you didn't have a father or a husband, you had nothing. If you didn't have a father or mother, you had nothing. In Matthew 12, Matthew quotes one of the servant songs. David talked about the servant songs uh, in past weeks. And in one of those servant songs, he, 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 uh, the passage talks about um, that the servant would, would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. Reeds, you know, grow in, the, in, in swampy areas. They're, they're kind of like round, hollow grass. And if, part, if one of them gets bruised and somebody walks by and hits it, it'll fall over and break at that point. And once it breaks, it'll never go back up. It's done, okay? Smoldering wicks, they had little, a little candle, uh, like candles, little lamps with oil in them. And there'd be an opening where the fumes would come out. And they would light that and there'd be a flame on it. And when the oil got low, then the flame would start to flicker. And just walking past it, uh, the, 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 uh, the air off your body would blow it out, okay? So he's talking about vulnerable, hurting people. Jesus won't push over the edge. And it says he'll keep ministering until he brings justice. Now, our word justice means I get what I think I should get. For Jesus, it meant justice for those broken, hurting people. The life was crushing. Our congregation has a worthy vision. David's been preaching on that too. A very worthy vision. As part of trying to fill out, uh, live out the provision, uh, provision. We've, we've done ministry in Haiti. David right now is in Cuba. Uh, people from our church have gone there. We do the world marketplace every year to try to help people who are trying hard to scrape out a living and have a living wage to sell their goods at a price that will give them a living wage. We, uh, we have adopted Celebrate Recovery, and they're a vital part of our congregation, and we support that ministry, and that ministry has become a part of, uh, of our congregation worshiping and serving with us. And we have a lot of special events. I could go on and on, but one of them was the Super Bowl party in which we, go into our, we invite our community to, to, to join us and, and, and just have fun and, and have warmth and, and food as, as we watch the game together and many other ways. But like every church, we live in the midst of a culture that desires to go the other direction. You know, when Jesus uh, preached the, uh, the gospel, when, whenever the apostles following him preached the gospel, they always ended the gospel message with a call to repentance. Now, we've kind of made it into, a, uh, into, into kind of a thing where we think that repentance is coming down and crying over your sins. Well, maybe that's part of it. But the Greek word for repentance means, is metanoia, and it means a change of mind. To the Greeks, uh, and, and this would be the understanding that people reading this uh, in Greek would have, the mind was the center of everything. So if your mind changed, everything about you changed with it. It would give directions to all the rest of you. So a change of mind would mean a change of direction in life. So all the rest of the world's going this way, 
all the kingdoms, and Jesus says, follow me this way. And to repent means to turn around from going that way and go this way with him, okay? But it's hard, isn't it? Because there's so many people going that way. It's hard even to turn around, and it's hard to keep your balance and keep going. People you know, people who know you, things that look exciting, and they're all going that way. And Jesus says, we're going this way. It's a strong force that has great influence upon us. It's difficult for us. In fact, it's impossible for us to control. We can't control that. Uh, T.S. Eliot, in his play, Murder in the Cathedral, about Thomas Beckett. Uh, you can go read the, read the play, read the story about Thomas Beckett. But um, he said in there, the fool in his folly tries to turn the wheel on which he is turning. That's where Thomas Beckett found himself. That's where we find ourselves. We're stuck on this wheel, and it's turning us around and around, and yet we're trying to turn it. And how much success do we have? We like, but sometimes we kind of like it that way, don't we? I mean, it's easy to, to say the words, but over here it's not so easy. But even worse is that it really feels good sometimes to be going that way. Uh, being an empire, uh, the United States, just like Rome, is a powerful empire, uh, we've sought that, and we've developed that, and we hang on to that. And empires accumulate. That's what we do. We accumulate stuff. When I was young, I remember uh, we didn't have much. People looking back at me, if I described my youth, would say we were poor. We weren't poor. Everybody was that way. But we have so much more now than we've ever had, don't we? We were lucky to keep one car running, more or less have two or three. It sat out in the cold. We didn't have two or three uh, stall garages, you know? It was hard, uh, but now we've accumulated, and we like to accumulate stuff. You know, one of the most noticeable things on, on the horizon as you travel across this country, storage units, red, yellow, blue, green, brown, everywhere storage units. We have so much stuff we can't even pack it into the houses we have, and they're not as small as they used to be, right? When you accumulate things, you begin to feel entitled to them, don't you? Watch all the shows in which people on those shows have their must-have lists, right? Must-have lists. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger all the time, don't they? Our must-have lists are amazing. What we have to have to make life work for us. And, you know, once we feel entitled to something, what we have to do is we have to protect it, don't we? We have to do whatever it takes to ensure that we have what we're entitled to. That's what we do. Even if it means war. Even it means putting economic pressure on other people. Whenever somebody in the world hiccups, we feel compelled to bring them in line. We just can't have that. It's not in our national interest, right? It's not. There's a price for being powerful. It requires a certain amount of oppression of others. You can't have power here unless there's someone over whom you can exert that power, correct? That's the way it works, isn't it? So to be powerful, you have to have people who aren't powerful, who have to bow down under the power you exert. Being rich requires others to be poor. I mean, it's, if everybody's the same, where is rich, right? To be rich, somebody has to be poor. The latest statistics uh, by the World Bank 
say that 20% of the world's population consumes 80% of the goods. 20% consume. Guess who they are, folks? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> right here. We are one of the richest countries in the world, and we may not think so, but we are some of the richest people in the whole world. Many people in the world still live on the equivalent of $1 a day U.S. The rich ones, two, three, four, or five, okay? We're rich. People of God have begun to enjoy the wealth and the consumption. Once things we consider luxuries, we too now call necessities so that we compete with each other using the terms of the culture to judge our success or failure. Listen to how we talk about ourselves. It's interesting. So my question is, why might we, the people of God, when we have been called by Jesus to be his church, to preach the message of love, grace, mercy, and hope, why might we be tempted to believe that real hope comes through the political system rather than through the Spirit of God? Why might we think that the justice which God seeks and demands of his creation can be entrusted to the government at any level and still think that God and his kingdom will be honored. We are faced with this temptation to forget who we are and what we are called to become. Jesus says we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We are those who bear the image of a humble king who showed compassion for the wounded and the broken. Uh, You you read my passage for me. I'm glad because I don't have to read it. But when Jesus was tempted by that with the coin, with the taxes, he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Can we do that? Can we see the difference That's all that can be asked. Our allegiance cannot be split. Jesus said, love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and in that all the law and the prophets will be fulfilled. And so we're faced again and again with this real choice, a real choice that has to be made. And believe it or not, every one of us has made it, will make it, and will continue to make it. You may say, I don't really make that choice. Well, in some things, not making a choice is making a choice. If you don't choose for something, you choose for the other. Between the two kings and the two kingdoms, to which every one of us, one way or the other, will give allegiance, right? The choice between the two kings and the two kingdoms. Our politicians will continue to claim that the real goal is to give greatness back to the United States of America by regaining our power and using it to keep it to keep our advantage. So we will usually choose leaders who exhibit boldness, brashness, powerful character, people we think who can get the job done for our nation. And as always, we end up in a couple of years disappointed. It's just it's it's, it's the way it happens, right? Because they're human. And that's not the way it's done. But God's goal is greater than the vision we might have for our country or our state or our community. God's goal isn't the restoration of one nation, but the restoration of the entire creation to its creator. 
An oppressive power cannot do that. When they returned from exile, they were trying to rebuild the temple, and Zerubbabel was their leader, and he was beginning to despair. How in the world are we going to lead this people? It was a ragtag bunch. Uh, They'd been in exile for so long, they had no idea how to rule themselves, run themselves, or do anything for themselves. And he was fearful that it wasn't going to work, that he would just not have the ability to lead. And so the Lord gave a message to Zechariah the prophet, to Zerubbabel, and he says, it's not by might. And it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God is the only one who can restore his creation, and he's working to do that. It's all a matter of perspective and focus. Two kings, two kingdoms. On which one will we focus? On which one will be clear in our vision as the direction we want to go? Whom will we worship, follow, and serve today and every day? into eternity. Let us pray.